Again, I actually pray my strength in the Lord. Seriously, pray my strength in the Lord as I, as I try to preach God's word this morning. Um, but th- this, this text is about a king and, and, and his promises, a king and his promises, a king and his promises. And, and if, you're, if you're familiar with the political landscape of any country, you know that any leader brings promises. Doesn't matter if it's in this country or otherwise, every leader brings promises. You take, for example, this country, and you look at the history of our leaders, our leaders have made promises. Our, our, all the way, you can go all the way back to 1916, Woodrow Wilson. He had a slogan that was, adop- that was adopted going into his reelection, and that slogan was, he kept us out of war. 1916, Woodrow Wilson won on that slogan. He kept us out of war. And they entered World War I one year later. Uh, President Roosevelt had promises. 1932, under the promise that he would balance the budget, he won. And by 1936, the budget, federal budget, had doubled, or the federal deficit had doubled from the time that he came in. President Johnson, Lyndon B. Johnson, 1964, declared that he would, be, he would not be sending our American boys to fight a war in Asia. One year later, he was deploying the troops into Vietnam. President George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, rather, in 1988, ran under the, the banner of one major signature promise. Read my lips. Can't do my George W. H. W. Bush voice this morning. Read my lips. No new taxes. Two years later, new taxes. We've had we've had wars on all sorts of stuff. Wars on poverty that didn't stop poverty. Wars on drugs that didn't stop drugs. Wars on crime. That didn't stop crime. Wars on terrorism. That has not stopped terrorism. Because even the best leaders in life can't completely fulfill the promises that your heart and my heart longs to see fulfilled and kept. The promises that we believe will make our world a better place. And we look to these leaders to, to fulfill these promises, but they can't. They can't. And every single year we say, but this guy is going to be different. Everything he says he's going to do. What we're really asking for is a savior. We're asking for an eternal king. The Advent season is intended to turn your focus and turn my focus to a king who actually makes promises and will keep every single one of them. It's intended to remind us that there are no kings on earth that can keep the promises that they make. There's only one king on earth. There's only one king, rather, in all the universe whose whose every single promise will be kept. And that's the king that I want to turn your focus to this morning in Isaiah chapter 11. 
It says there shall, in verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from its roots shall bear fruit. A single shoot growing from a stump. The reference to Jesse is to obviously highlight the fact that God's promised king was intended to come from the lineage of David. God declared to David through the prophet Nathan in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, it says, he says, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus affirms that he is the answer to that prophet's proclamation. In John's revelation, in the 22nd chapter of Revelation, verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What Isaiah says that is really, really important for us to highlight is the humble place that the king is coming from. He's a shoot coming from a stump. The stump of Jesse. One theologian says about this stump that Isaiah didn't start his Christmas season with a tree. He started his Christmas season with a stump. Israel is not considered a, a prominent nation in this text. They have fallen off and fallen away. But though they are no longer of much reputation and though they have fallen far from God, God has not fallen from them. God has not forgotten about them. You see, God, he makes provision for his people, even when his people have made no provision in their hearts for him. See, out of these humble circumstances, these, these stump-like circumstances, God the Father raises a humble king. A king from the stump, a kingdom from the stump is forged. Even when the king arrives, he doesn't arrive in a prominent setting. He arrives in a stump-like setting. He arrives in a manger. He arrives in a setting amongst a group of people who are under the control and the arm of Rome. They don't have any power that they're wielding. He himself is born into a family of humble, stump-like accommodations. All of this shows us that the, is, is all of this shows us that the king's throne is not built necessarily from a seat of prominence. The king's throne begins in a manger. The king's throne begins on a stump. His kingdom doesn't require even worldly prominence to thrive. His kingdom doesn't require worldly power to thrive. His kingdom doesn't require anything that these normal earthly kingdoms require for thriving because our king is not of this earth. Our king is not subject to the same limitations as our president's. And our governors, he's not subject to the same boundaries. He's not subject to the same ceilings 
The only thing that this kingdom needs to thrive is the king. The only thing that this kingdom needs to thrive is the king. And we must remember this. The next time we feel like we have to compromise the values of the kingdom in order to expand the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't need anything else but the king. Isaiah continues describing what makes this coming king so wonderful and Verse 2, he shows us that the king will come with spirit, with the spirit. He says, and the spirit shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. All kings appointed by God are given a king's anointing, signifying that God's spirit rests upon them. And that God's presence was with him. That was the purpose of the anointing. To show that, hey, God is for this person. God is with this person. God is leading this person and guiding this person. And we hear this truth confirmed by God the Father as it relates to God the Son in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is baptized. And upon his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down and rests upon him. Just like Isaiah says in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of God rests upon him. And from the heavens, there's a voice heard by all. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But Jesus' anointing with the Spirit is a significant step above any other king's anointing. One theologian describes it as Jesus unlike the other kings, was conceived in the spirit. The other kings received temporary anointing. Jesus was birthed in this anointing. From his birth to his resurrection, he is a man of the spirit. At every stage of life, every stage of ministry, the spirit guides, the spirit directs, the spirit empowers him. Jesus is walking in power known by no other king ever to walk the face of the earth. Even those anointed by God never had the spirit resting upon them like, these, like this eternal king does. <laughs> Excuse me. And so from there, we hear of these ways in which the spirit manifests itself. For example, the spirit manifests itself in wisdom and understanding. The spirit manifests itself in counsel and might. The spirit manifests itself in knowledge and fear of the Lord. See, don't miss how much this coming king's anointing and power is described in terms of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. All of it rests upon him. And this king doesn't rule with with brute force. Notice the qualities of this king. Wisdom, knowledge, insight, understanding. And then also notice that this king is not ruling in brute force, 
But this king is ruling with humility, the fear of the Lord. And so this king doesn't rule like typical kings. This king rules, thank you. This king rules with understanding, wisdom. This king rules with humility. How do you typically see kings rule? Force. Oppression, fear. Arrogance, pride. This king rules in a totally different way. And he calls his people to operate in a similar way. Not with fury and rage, but with wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Not with arrogance, pride, but with humble fear and and respect to the Lord. Even this king comes to the earth saying that my food is to do the one, the will of the one who sent me. So he's a king submitted to his father in every way. He's a king who is clothed in power, but he's not a king that feels like he has to dominate with force. He's a king that's clothed in power, but he doesn't have to dominate with haughtiness and arrogance. See, the eternal king whose first coming we are celebrating, whose second coming we are anticipating, was clothed with the Spirit's power. But the way in which he demonstrates that power is totally unique from what we notice, from what we are grown accustomed to. But notice also that this king, he comes with judgment and he judges righteously. This coming king will be a king who judges people righteously. One of the notable qualities of a great king is his ability to judge fairly and equitably. To not be baited by wealth, to not be baited by prominence or promises of prominence. To not be cowardly and run from the powers that be. To not be partial towards those with power because of how he might be paid back. Isaiah tells us that we should expect the best judgment to come from this eternal king. Abraham once said, far be it from you to do such a thing as allow the righteous to be punished with the wicked. He says, shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham expected the king to do what was right. And he was right to expect that because this was a righteous King, this is a righteous king. Moses, in his final song, sang of the righteousness and the justice of this king. In Deuteronomy 32, he said that that the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This king will judge based on what is simply right. See, in a world like ours filled with great leaders, great authorities, but also filled with some not-so-great leaders and not-so-great authorities, I'm encouraged 
that when it is all said and done, we have a king who will judge rightly. It says in verse 3 of chapter 11, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not be judged or shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. And he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The coming king of this eternal kingdom is not moved by what looks good on TV or what makes good theater or celebrity or popularity. None of that brings a favorable judgment with this king. He will judge the poorly rightly. He will judge the meek rightly. He will do what is right. That's the hope we can take. Even if this world never gets it right. You see this happening all the time in our world. From uneven practices and payday lending to people getting charged $17 for a 15-minute call out of prison to call their families. We are subject to an imperfect system. We are subject to justice not always being right or the way it's delivered always being right. Even the the, the president of the American Bar Association had something to say about it last year in an article that she wrote, um, in, in an article that she wrote entitled, Poverty is Not a Crime. In that article, she wrote that the sad reality is that in America today, economic status can determine the type of justice you receive. Whether it's in the type of legal aid you get, or whether it's being drowned under fines that you cannot pay. She said, every day we're fighting to make this system better, but this is a reality that we're living in. And no matter, whether you, no matter where you land on these issues, none of us can argue that we are existing in a perfect system. In a system where the weakest among us have every opportunity to thrive as the strongest among us. But the eternal king judges not only rightly, but judges rightly perfectly. In other words, he always judges rightly. The eternal king is consistently righteous in his judgments. What does that mean? That mean for, for one, it means that to follow this king means that we follow the way of righteousness. And when you talk about righteousness, most of us think about righteousness in the terms of the things that we do for ourselves. When we talk about righteousness, we, take, we, we think righteousness is me not cussing. Me not, me not engage in sexual immorality. And that's part, that's part of righteousness. But righteousness is very much not just what you do for yourself, but it's how you do towards others. Righteousness is how you treat other people. 
and what you allow. See, righteousness is me seeing a brother who's in need or seeing a brother who's treated unjustly and saying, I'm going to stand up for that brother or I'm going to stand up for that sister. Righteousness is not me empowered to do something about that person's suffering, saying to myself, well, that's a little too inconvenient for me. Righteousness is me stepping into the hurt of another and seeing that they are done rightly. Proverbs 29 and 7 says, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. In other words, a righteous man is paying attention when the poor is not treated right. You understand that? Not just simply saying, oh, that's too bad, right? Shame, shame. But a righteous man understands when the poor is not being treated right and moves in response. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the Bible tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice. In other words, we serve a just God. We serve a just king. And as a people who are serving a just king, we do just things. But the other thing that you need to understand about this just king is that this just king understands what it means to be treated unjustly. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we we don't have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize. We have a high priest who does sympathize with us, meaning not just in the ways that you are tempted in terms of personal sin, but in the ways that you have suffered. At the, at the result of others' sin. We serve a king who was betrayed by a friend. We serve a king who was brought before judges on trumped-up charges. We serve a king whose innocence was betrayed because someone, was, someone who was guilty was exchanged for him. We serve a king who understands what it means to be Treated unjustly. And so he pursues justice from a place of familiarity. He knows what it means to be treated unjustly. Even as he is moving towards this day where justice will have its final say. And justice will have its final say. What Isaiah promises us in chapter 11 is that the king will establish justice once and for all, fairly, equitably for all. And there will be no system for the poor. There will be no system for the meager. There will be no system for the weak. It will just be justice that he has won through the cross. Here's the reality is that the reason that he can purchase such justice 
is because not only is he fixing these smaller, smaller, lesser offenses of justice, but he is fixing the largest injustice, that being our injustice towards God. Because we all have sin towards him. And so he is riding the ship, the whole ship, by him fixing the largest injustice, which is us against God, he resolves all the other minor injustices in between. The king will also bring perfect peace. In verse 6 through 8, we hear, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the Leopards shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall graze. And their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The coming king will bring perfect peace. Take notice that Isaiah makes the case by connecting the wildest of animals, those that are untamed, wolves, leopards, lions, bears, cobras. He connects them to the most vulnerable of creatures, lambs and goats, calves, cows children, creatures that can barely defend themselves against the most vicious of creatures. He says that they will sit together in fellowship, in peace. They will eat together. In other words, the most extreme examples with peace to show that peace will be established in, the, in, in all of the in-between. He takes the most vicious polar opposites and he says they're going to live in peace. Why? Because he says everything in between is going to live in peace too. Do you understand? How shall this come to pass? How shall these vicious animals and these Harmless and vulnerable creatures live in peace together. He says in verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy all in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord, as it increases, so does peace. See, the more we see of God, the more we know of God, the deeper our knowledge becomes of him, the less selfish and sinful conflict we create. Do you hear that? The deeper the knowledge of God, the more, not the more you know not the more you know about God in terms of facts. Because that's not, that's not the knowledge of God that Isaiah is referencing. He's talking about relational knowledge. Knowing of God is to be in fellowship with God. 
The deeper we know of him, the more we see of him, the less sinful and the less selfish conflict we create. Now, if this king is coming to pursue peace, then what does he expect those that serve him to do? To be peacemakers. He tells us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, to strive for peace with everyone. To strive for peace with everyone. He tells us in Romans chapter 14, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue the things that create peace around you. He tells us in Romans chapter 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As people who serve a king who is bringing perfect peace, we should be making peace. Even though, even though our peace that we make is imperfect. But we make imperfect peace until the perfect comes. So listen, listen, listen to the, the scope in which peace is is intended to be made according to Jesus. If possible, so far as it depends on you. In other words, as far and as much as you can possibly control it, live peaceably. Who do I live peaceably with? My buddy, my friend, the coworker that I like, the church member that I like, who do I live peaceably with, Paul? Live peaceably with all. That's your scope. As people that are following a king bringing perfect peace, our scope is to bring peace to everyone. And to do everything that we can to make every possible provision to have as many conversations as it takes, to swallow our tongue as much as it takes, to swallow our pride as many times as it takes in order to live peaceably with all. And let me share something else with you. The scope, pay attention to the scope, with all, that starts where? That starts with the people closest to you. Because sometimes peaceably is not, sometimes we can live peaceably with everybody else but the people that we love the most. And so living peaceably starts in the house and it moves to the children's bedroom and it moves beyond the children's bedroom to the work, to the office, to the job with your coworkers and to your neighbors and then, to, and then ultimately every place your feet treads. We follow a king who's bringing perfect peace. And so we must make peace even if we make it imperfectly. 
Lastly, this king will come with, un, with an unending kingdom. And that's what verses 10 through 16 covers. In fact, verses 15 and 16, we hear uh, a, a, a reflection back to the deliverance of the children of Egypt, of children of Israel out of Egypt. It says, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of, the e- a sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals, in other words, on dry ground. The point that he's making is that the same way that the Lord delivered his people from Egypt out of captivity and bondage, he will deliver his people again. When the king comes, this coming king, that he comes, this anointed king who's anointed by the spirit, conceived by the spirit, this king, this king who comes and he brings righteous judgment with him, that he will judge righteously, perfectly. This king that comes and that he brings peace with him and that he calls his people to pursue peace in the same way and he calls his people to pursue righteousness in the same way. That this king is not satisfied in establishing a kingdom that is small. See, the kingdom starts as a stump, but the kingdom doesn't end as a stump. Because in order for the kingdom to thrive, remember, the only thing that the kingdom needs is the king. And the king is the king of kings. And the king is the Lord of lords. And so even though it started small, the kingdom will expand and expand, not because its people are great, but because its king is great. And it will continue to expand until it touches every single fabric and fiber in the universe. This is the kingdom that will be eternal. You can can resist this kingdom if you want. But here's news for you. There is no other kingdom to align yourself to. In the scope of eternity, this is the only kingdom. And so if you desire to see eternity, if you desire to to reign with this king, if you desire to know what perfect peace really means, if you desire to know what perfect judgment and righteousness truly means, then there's only one answer for you. Bow your knee to this king. Trust this king. Turn from your ways of doing things. Repent of your sin. Turn from your way of doing things. Turn to this king. And place your life in the hand of this king, Jesus Christ. Be a part of his ever-expanding kingdom. Be a part of his eternal kingdom. Be a part of the only kingdom that will remain when all others have become stumps. Stumps.